Welcome to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We look forward to delving into the topics that are shaping clinical care, medical research, medical education, and challenging us to reimagine medicine. Each month, we bring together clinicians, researchers, educators, healthcare thought leaders, and medical students to share the experiences and ideas that are fueling their efforts. In this episode, we'll discuss preparing future health professionals to battle America's opioid epidemic. I'm Dr. Johnny Lifshitz. I'm Dr. Katie Bright. And we are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us. In 2017, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey declared a public health state of emergency. At that time, more than two Arizonans were dying each day from opioid overdoses. The Arizona Opioid Epidemic Act was introduced in response to this opioid epidemic. It is the most comprehensive package that any state has passed to address this issue and crisis to date. As a result, undergraduate and graduate health education and practitioner programs in Arizona have developed a first-of-its-kind statewide curriculum that calls on all provider types to address the public health emergency. We are talking with leaders who are at the forefront of helping solve America's biggest public health issue. It's so great to have you with us. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care. Joining us today is Sydney Stone, Master's of Education, Director of Curricular Management with the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Arizona is one of the many states working to find solutions in battling the opioid crisis. The Arizona Opioid Epidemic Act included objectives that led to changes in medical education curricula. Cinda, can you help us understand what the statewide objectives include? And thank you both for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, So the objectives came from the Arizona Department um, Health Services, and it was uh, to require Arizona medical education programs to incorporate evidence-based pain management and substance use disorder treatment into their curriculum. Uh, DHS also submitted a timeline in which to create this academic program and it wasn't only for medical schools but for um, all different type of medical education programs, MDs, DOs, MP, DVM, and and DDS. Um, There were 18 programs in Arizona that met to finalize a curriculum and that curriculum was to be completed in June of 2018. So, Senda, all of these programs met and devised a way to look at substance use as well as pain management. What were the objectives that they were trying to implement in the curriculum changes for all of these healthcare professions? Well, some of the objectives was to to collaborate on what the definition of pain and addiction really was. The program as a whole ended up developing 10 state components. And within those 10 state components, there were different objectives for each one of those components. So there was a total of 73 objectives. So as an educator within the 
case-based instruction modules, I did notice that many of the modules changed over the last couple of years to include a, mm -hmm. could this patient also be in an addictive state or a pain-seeking state? So I'm, as a, myself, as an educator here, I've seen the effects of your work in terms of adding those elements. I wanted to comment on that too because you've sat with dozens and dozens of curricular unit directors and mm -hmm. myself included with my primary care curriculum to kind of just tease through not only what we already have existing but how could we expand enhance and address maybe some of the objectives that weren't yet captured within our curriculum mm -hmm. so I, we sure all did appreciate that and I know it was a tremendous effort mm -hmm. I'm gonna keep going a little bit with that idea um, because it was a lot of work and we have a lot of new um, and exciting objectives in place, we've expanded our opioid um, curriculum in a good way because of this mandate. What measures are in place to ensure that we continue this momentum and continue making sure that we're covering this important topic? Well, as you as you noted, you know, our curriculum changes just um, year to year because we're always improving and we're updating it. So we want to make sure that that material that currently is covered um, with the 10 components and 73 objectives isn't moved or changed. So we do a curricular audit on a yearly basis and that's presented to our curriculum committee and it is also presented to our subcommittee. So our subcommittee for first and second year and subcommittee for third and fourth year. And if we do see that um, anything has been changed or modified or removed, we make sure to notify those block or course directors and work with them in getting that material back in or, you know, more than likely it might have been removed from one session, but it was incorporated somewhere else. So that's something that we, we just do on a regular yearly basis, again, you know, at, at different levels. If we had the full body of knowledge that we needed to be able to impart all of this information to our future physicians and dentists and other healthcare providers, uh, it would be easy. But as a scientist and as a, a researcher, there must be some elements that we don't understand about opioid addiction, substance use disorders, um, and the, potentially the social aspects of that as well. The U of A Com Phoenix um, decided, you know, we're going to go a step above that, quite a few steps above that, and we're going to incorporate all 73 of those. And, and they are, some are very detailed, and so I think that's a good place um, for some of these students to start because it shows a concern, again, not only from a medical entity, but from nursing, from dentistry, from all the other um, universities and medical education throughout the valley that they have a concern of, of all of these factors. Yeah, I, I love your answer because initially I was thinking that we'd be talking about the drugs themselves or the receptors, but you took it a whole different uh, direction, which is um, medical education research. So to go back and say, have the changes that we've implemented advanced our curriculum? Have the changes that have been implemented moved us in the right direction? Can we compare it against our original objectives? And I think that those are wonderful approaches to know that the work that's been done is keeping us on the original target and we're not drifting from it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How would you define successful implementation? Um, I think it's one that, that grows, that doesn't become stagnant and that we're just satisfied for meeting the, the minimum. I think um, continuing to go above and beyond. I couldn't agree more. 
Well, Cinda Stone, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. It was a pleasure having you. Well, thank you both very much. We would like to welcome Dr. Maria Manriquez. Dr. Manriquez is a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Her research focuses on addiction medicine, specifically substance use disorder in pregnant and parenting women. She also serves as director of the Pathway Scholars Program. Dr. Manriquez, you direct the Beyond Addiction Program here, which serves pregnant and parenting women in rural and urban areas who have substance use disorders. What inspired you to create this telementoring program that you're about to tell us about to serve these patients, and how does that telementoring program work? So I think my initial um, idea behind all of this is realizing when I started treating patients with addiction that there wasn't a lot of support. I happened to attend a conference on telementoring at, it was a a session at a conference, and it's probably the most well-known in the nation and globally, which is an ECHO project. And it just seemed like a really great opportunity to be able to tie in what we have here academically, reaching out to um, providers regionally, locally, rurally. So as I envision this telementoring program, which um, please excuse me, I'm not sure what it looks like, but I'm imagining like a website chat window that if I were to go onto a particular website and there could be a little chat window to call, uh, talk with uh, customer service or so. Is that how the telementoring works directly from patient to provider? A lot of our participants will zoom in and they can choose to be seen or not seen and depending on the volume of uh, folks that call in and or zoom in that makes it so that you can have that interaction. So is this a one-on-one? Is it a group Um, therapy type of thing? It's kind of a group therapy. It's more like along the lines of a case presentation. So we'll do a 10-minute segment on whatever the topic is for the day. Sometimes that turns into 30-minute segment, but it's intended to be 10-minute segment. And then we'll go into cases that are actual cases, de-identified cases, and just discuss the management and how we would manage it, what challenges we've had in our own practice. I think that's awesome. I can tell you when I speak with a lot of our physician colleagues, one of the things that they are most apprehensive of is feeling like they won't have that, like they're just going to be in uncharted territory and won't have support but we deal with all similar cases and it's just so nice to bounce that off each other and support each other so and it's it's very reinforcing it and and it also gives you ideas so that you can in real time improve your practice change practice a lot of times we you know we'll go through our own maintenance of certification we'll read an article we'll say oh we should try that but it's helpful to have this more um timely Opioid addiction is often the result of other underlying conditions. So, you know, maybe someone is self-medicating for depression, chronic pain. How do you personally address um, treating the substance use disorder while also diagnosing and appropriately treating the underlying comorbidity? Right. So, unfortunately, our profession as clinicians, regardless of how we enter into um, being providers, we somehow get away from the most important thing that we do, which is screening, screening, screening. And so there are so many tools that we can screen our patients, whether it is depression screening tools, anxiety tools, um, mood disorder, we need to be doing that. And, it, and the issue is 
we get a limited amount of time with our patients. And so by and large, they come to you with something, right? Some type of chief complaint. And, and that's what we focus our time on. We know that in particular with substance use disorder that the comorbidity for psychiatric as well as any other medical condition exists. And so if we're not addressing that, and does this substance use, is it because of the, the mental health disorders or is it because of the medical disorders, pain, um, and, and vice versa? Did the substance use affect those, um, those entities and, or those diagnoses? So it's really important, screening, 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 and, and acknowledging that a very high comorbidity um, diagnosis exists, both the medical as well as psychiatric. How are we reaching out to those that haven't had formal training? How are we including them? As Katie said, how are we breaking down that barrier to allow them to start talking about this more delicate issue than, than some other health it, diseases? Yeah, the silver lining to a very unfortunate opioid epidemic is that we acknowledge and recognize that there were huge gaps in our education. And, and so most medical specialties are going back and including that in their maintenance of certification. So we frequently, for example, in my um, specialty of obstetrics and gynecology, we have to read 30 articles at minimum and do tests on those articles. And it's, it's really delightful to see that they're adding a lot of opioid use, substance use, more screening into the maintenance. Um, we have a lot of work to do. And there's a lot of folks that say, wow, I never had this kind of training. I'm not sure. That's where their hesitation to treat is mostly stemming from, I think. So on a more personal note, I have heard that you have said that the work that you do with women who are struggling with substance use disorder called you. It's been a calling. Right. Can you describe that journey a little bit? What has brought you here? It's, it, it's interesting. So my back history... Um, is, is probably not your your traditional back history. So I married at 16, started adulting at the same age, had a child at 17, and along the way became a registered nurse. And if, as I look back over the history of my life, there's so many points where this was a, and I won't go into details, where this issue of substance use disorder was real and present, whether it was because I had to attend 12-step programs in my nursing education or my medical school education because of people that I knew in my own personal life. But um, specifically for this and why it drove me in this direction was I was able to get a um, CMS, so a huge federal grant that, that allowed me to do some innovative care models, and I chose a medical home model, a maternity medical home, and then realized I had nowhere to send my patients to. But just more and more doors opened, and it really was that pulling, calling, um, I guess hopefully that explains That it. definitely does, and I've always been curious about that, so thank you for elaborating. Yeah, sometimes those callings are not a big long calling, it's just a bunch of short ones that keep you uh, step mm -hmm. by step getting you along that path towards a journey. How long have you been working on this Beyond Addiction program so that we can know how much it grows? And then from that, how can we conceptualize how much more you want it to grow, not only in Arizona, but potentially uh, to distribute it in larger areas across the United States or regionally? We started 
the actual sessions in the summer. Um, we so were able to, very, very new. Right. So we've had up to date, we've had four sessions um, and we designed it so that we would focus on pregnant and parenting women in one series. And then the second series, series B, is the Arizona um, pain and addiction curriculum. So we'll take segments and components from, from those um, core topics. And then the final, which I find to be really, really important, is the community resources. And it's, it's just impressive of how siloed we are in caring for patients in a, in a community. We have the Department of Child Services. We have the Superior Court. A lot of people trying to help, but because they're not in the medical profession, we don't really interact and engage. So many of those individuals are on as well, and they'll be providing um, sessions, topics, and then doing case review from their perspective. So they'll, they'll submit some cases and we'll talk through that where do we send these patients and how does that work and what does that look like to the patient on the back end? No, I really like that approach of um, being able to not just address the, the uh, allopathic medical doctors, but all the healthcare providers, but also then the whole support network and build that essentially that program or that enterprise so that you can package it and potentially send it out to others. These projects of telementoring can really reach and, and very remotely all you really need is a computer with internet access so you know hopefully we, we can get to that to that level excellent I, I was hoping maybe you could offer some advice to some of our clinicians who might be listening or even future uh, healthcare professionals if they're interested in getting involved in treating well we'll just focus specifically on women who have substance use disorder what advice can you give them i guess i have to hearken back that every single provider anybody that is in any contact with patients has a patient that is likely affected by substance use disorder so whether it's they themselves their family member um a friend they they need to be screening they need to be asking questions so even if they happen not to be the person providing the maintenance agonist therapy, they need to be aware and screening for it so that they can provide the referral to treatment. So, so everybody needs to um, get, in, get in the game. Dr. Manriquez, thank you so much for the advice and the insights that you've shared about your program, your brand new program that is really gonna change the way that providers think and act on this opioid epidemic. Um, it's time for us to take a break. Thank you, Dr. Manriquez. Thank you. Thank you. The Reimagine Medicine podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Dr. Johnny Lifshitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital and the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affair Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the Curriculum Committee and Associate Dean of Clinical and Competency-Based Education at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. She is a family physician practicing at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. Welcome back to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We are pleased to have Dr. Luke Peterson with us. Dr. Peterson is a physician specializing in family medicine and addiction medicine at Banner University Medical Center, Phoenix. 
He also serves as assistant director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship Program, which he founded with Dr. Anita Karnick, who is an addiction psychiatrist at the Phoenix VA. The Addiction Medicine Fellowship Program is sponsored by ACCESS, the Arizona Healthcare Cost Containment System, and it operates under the College of Medicine Phoenix. It's accredited by the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. The college is one of nearly 50 fellowships that were granted accreditation. The one-year fellowship includes clinical rotations at Banner University Medical Center and Phoenix VA Healthcare System. Dr. Peterson, can you kind of just elaborate a little bit? We, we've noticed and we've discussed a little bit during this podcast, there seems to be a little paucity, a lack of a lot of good opioid education in undergraduate medical education. What was your nidus? How did, why did you and Dr. Karnick create the Addiction Medicine Fellowship Program? Good question. So in Arizona, there, uh, when we were talking about starting this fellowship, there wasn't any addiction medicine fellowships. All psychiatrists and uh, medicine-trained folks needed to leave the state in order to get adequate training. So it seemed obvious that uh, there was a gap in education. And it seems like if there is a fellowship in a, in a healthcare system or in a city, it can act as a uh, as an educational hub and set a standard of addiction medicine treatment in the area. Mm-hmm. So to be able to understand the scope of this new fellowship that you're putting together, how long has it been in, in existence? So we've been accredited for a year, and our first class started July of this year. Can you talk to us about the fact that the absence of this education may have led to the opioid epidemic? Sure, I think it's it's certainly a, a, a part of what it, uh, contributed to this, and it's probably a, it's bigger than just not having doctors learn about how to treat addiction, but it really speaks to um, where, where does addiction treatment lie? And uh, for decades, it's lied in the criminal justice system in our country. With the passing of certain legislation in our country years ago, we pretty much funneled most, if not all, of, of addiction treatment into the criminal justice system and stigmatized addiction as not just a chronic, it's not a chronic disease, but as a moral failing. We really fragmented and siloed addiction treatment uh, for a number of years. We're now just starting to recognize addiction as a chronic disease and as something that ought to be treated in a primary care uh, setting. And. Um, and so we're just barely starting to take that back. Um, so if you have years and years of physicians who are not trained in addiction, not trained in how to screen or treat it, it's just not going to be something that's in the wheelhouse of primary care or hospital settings. So people are not going to get the care there. They're going to get treated for their other comorbidities that are associated with substance use, but the underlying cause of it's going to be um, not addressed. It, uh, layered on top of personal stigma and bias is institutional stigma. You'll run into um, healthcare systems that s- say, you know, we, we, don't, we don't treat addiction, we don't do buprenorphine in primary care, which further propagates this as somebody else's problem and not legitimizing it as a medical issue. You know, thanks for elaborating on that. The stigma is huge. And I can say as a primary care physician that um, I battle it all the time with my patients. And it's, and I love that you gave a little bit of that history um, for learners and even for my patients, it's interesting because, just as an aside, like we never say, um, you know, to a diabetic, you've been abusing donuts. 
<laughs> or, you know, when we look at their urine, we, we would call someone with substance use disorder dirty urine, but we would never say to a diabetic who has glucose in their urine, that's dirty. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think there's just a long way to go, but I'm glad that you guys are doing what you're doing because I think this is just one of many, many steps forward to help destigmatize. And, um, you know, it's a chronic disease, and it's a relapsing, remitting. It's a, it's a long-term chronic disease, and I think that people just need to understand that. So can you speak to that a little bit, uh, specifically maybe the genetic components? So th- there's, there's a lot of uh, vulnerabilities that people have that set them higher risk for developing a substance use disorder. Um, there are twin studies and genetic studies that look at what is the genetic maybe preload risk of developing a substance use disorder. And it's quite surprising that it's in these studies anywhere from 40 to 60% of somebody's risk for developing an addiction is, is all genetic. So we're all at risk. And, um, and that this is that opioid addiction and all addictions um, uh, are seen in all socioeconomic statuses all races um, are equally as as at risk for developing addiction, and and so so that's an important thing to remember. Here in the college, there's a push to make sure that our medical students are able and comfortable diving into primary care literature, primary literature, um, whether it's on drugs of use or in clinical diagnosis. And I'm assuming the same is true in your fellowship that you are providing that critical training so that you're not just accepting what a drug company is providing or what the marketing material says, but you can go deeper into that. That's another way in which we can address the uh, opioid epidemic here. How else are we going to overcome the uh, anxiety of physicians and other behavioral health providers to uh, address this issue? Yeah, so I have a couple answers for that. Um, The first is that um, medical students and residents need to see the treatment of opioid use disorder modeled. Um, they need to see physicians and, and their faculty mentors addressing this like any other chronic disease. One of my greatest influences in, uh, in addiction medicine was actually a family doctor in rural Illinois who was treating addiction out of his primary care office. So I, I walked in not planning on ha- and having a career in addiction medicine, rather having a, a, a pl- I was planning on actually being like a rural doc, just jack of all trades, doing it all, delivering at the local community hospital and everything. And this doctor changed the course of my career. When presented with a patient who was uh, clearly asking for opioids and, and had a history of abusing opioids, and it was very clear that that was the case, instead of um, having resentment for that person, and asking them to leave and, and then not offering them help or offering them the, the pain management referral that everybody knows is not going to go anywhere. Um, he turned the table and, and sat down with the person, treated her like a human being, um, said that you know he has training and, and knows how to help her and it looks like things are going awry and he wants to be able to provide support. He prescribed buprenorphine. He had a mental health provider come and see her that day in clinic and and got her set up with some behavioral supports. Within a month, she was finding a job. She reconciled a relationship with her family, and she was sober and doing incredible. It was a transformation that I had never seen before in treating any other chronic disease, and it just ignited a fire within myself 
to want to continue to do this. And and since then, it's just it's been um, an avalanche now of just taking over my career, which is lovely, and I and I love what I do. So one thing is modeling. The second thing that I think is really important to do is to lobby our legislature for um, to cover and and expand the access of addiction treatment in our communities, and to and to and and that includes. Um, medication-assisted treatment, but it also includes harm reduction, syringe access programs, and um, and for policies that don't discriminate against people who are accessing these treatments. Um, uh, because what you'll find in some communities is that people who are on buprenorphine or methadone are not allowed in residential treatments or sober living sites and things like that. And that that all needs to be changed and uh, advocated advocated against. Um, that all goes back to the stigma that you were talking mm-hmm. about, that we need to um, basically pull the curtain back on that stigma. Once right. you pull that curtain back, it becomes a human condition, and we're all human, mm-hmm. and there's opportunity to treat. Right. Uh, I mean, you said it very clearly that there are many diseases out there that we would love to cure, but this is one that can be treated, and you've seen that transformation, and that is the gold standard for every one of your patients, I'm presuming. I will say that I, I feel like a lot of primary care providers not enough, but are starting to get their Suboxone waivers and they're starting to sort of realize like this is a really innovative and important and also essential thing for me to do. But I do have a fair number of colleagues that are still hesitant. So maybe if you don't mind closing with just a few words of advice and how to get them sort of to take that next step. So half of people who have their buprenorphine waiver actually are treating five or less patients. Um, in residencies, at least in a study of 2018, about a third of residencies offered this waiver training. Only only uh, one in five required it. Um, so there's there's going to be a lot of people out there who are in primary care fields that don't have that experience in in residency, seeing it modeled. And th- when you poll primary care physicians, their biggest concern is generally um, behavioral health support. And so um, if we're able to garner uh, uh, behavioral integrated behavioral health support in clinics, uh, whether that's through your system or whether that's uh, telephonically or um, telehealth or through some of the insurance, I think that that takes away a barrier. Um, so finding the resources in your area um, or with your payer mix to get people into behavioral health and having that set up it will be very helpful um, and take away some of some of the the trepidation that someone might feel starting out. Uh, um, prescribing buprenorphine in primary care. Dr. Peterson, thank you so much for being with us. It's just been a pleasure. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Katie, it's such an honor to be here at the College of Medicine Phoenix, knowing that we're surrounded by educators and physicians and other partners that are tackling the opioid epidemic head on. This epidemic uh, requires new approaches to change the landscape of education and medical care in order to help those that are in need. Yes, I really enjoyed diving into how proactive Arizona has been as a state and really focusing on this interprofessional initiative where, you know, 18 different institutions came together interprofessionally and came up with the state opioid um, objectives and how we've been implementing that, you know, in a proactive way within our curriculum to sort of not just keep up, but sort of stay ahead of the curve as far as how we're combating this crisis. Yeah, and I really like the way that we learned the scope of practice, sorry to speak, for the entire state of Arizona that 
we need to start somewhere, even if we don't have all the evidence, and that uh, those initiatives and those objectives were formed, mm -hmm. knowing that they are going to be revised, but we have to start acting now. And then the idea that we're going to reevaluate it in an iterative manner, in a comprehensive manner, and looking at it from all aspects, uh, makes it uh, aware that we're going to have aspects like the tele-mentoring mm -hmm. and the real or the face-to-face -face mentoring. So the difference between Dr. Manriquez and Dr. Peterson that they were talking both about mentoring but from different aspects. I think the mentoring piece was really important as we sort of just try to combat this crisis in finding ways to sort of have providers unite and really jump in to combat this. I think it's going to be a huge, um, hopefully, inspirational piece for any of our listeners. I also enjoyed how you mentioned how comprehensive this this discussion and plan is, how it kind of involved UME and GME, so it was in the, in the medical uh, realm, but also kind of geared towards providers in general and how they can jump in to sort of uh, become part of the solution. Yeah, and you use the phrase jump in, which it's really scary to take that first step. Mm -hmm. And we heard about all the different ways that we're breaking down those barriers from the undergraduate level to the, the fellow level, but also the existing provider level. And by breaking down those barriers, opening up the door and having that conversation, uh, I mean, I just wish to all of our listeners and everybody around us that they have the same transformative experience that Dr. Peterson talked about with that mm -hmm. one patient who said, holy cow, I can do something as a physician, and this is a treatable condition, mm -hmm. which is extraordinarily important to move forward, not only for the vast array of healthcare providers, but also the legislators and those that are going to be able to create new facilities, the right facilities and the right approaches to support tackling this epidemic. And as you said, it's a condition, just like any of the other conditions that we treat. And anything that we can do uh, as far as medication-assisted treatment, uh, wraparound services with behavioral health is, is a step in the right direction, and it's better than a patient receiving none of those services. So just taking that first step. Yeah, and th that first step likely to be the one that Dr. Marinrica said, screening. That we have Absolutely. to screen, be aware of those screens so that we can identify them and help them. Uh, at this time, Katie, you know uh, we're totally out of time. Uh, the good news is that next episode is extraordinarily exciting. We're going to tackle the topic of reimagining health. Uh, is my fate in my genes? Mm -hmm. So we heard that uh, that addiction has a genetic mm -hmm. component, and we're going to learn much more about that from experts in genetics and genomics. But for now, lift shits out like a well-functioning GI system. Bright out like a good night's sleep. The Reimagine Medicine podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifshitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine, the song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CC BYSA 4.0 license.